1: Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. And it's that time of year again. That is the 12th Annual World Religions Conference, which is sponsored by Interfaith Dialogue Association, is happening in just a couple of weeks. It's uh, happening on November 2nd. This year we're doing something very interesting. We are uh, partnering with the West Michigan Environmental Action Council Uh, specifically, their Ecology and Spirituality Conference. And uh, we are creating a dual conference. So it's our 12th and it is the third uh, conference for WEMIAC. And it is entitled this year, Spirituality and the Environment. The conference will provide an opportunity for reflection, discussion and commitment among people of many faiths regarding our environment practices and spiritual relationships to the earth. The keynote address and workshop will be presented by Dr. John Grimm on the contributions of religious and spiritual communities, including Native American, to a renewed ecological vision. Professor Grimm is a teacher of world religions at Bucknell University and co-editor of a series of books on religions and world ecology. Uh, Some more on uh, Dr. Grimm. He published The Shaman. Patterns of Religious Healing Among the Ojibwe Indians, a study of the Ashinabi Ojibwe Healing Practitioners with the University of Oklahoma Press. And with his wife, Mary Evelyn Tucker, he has co-edited Worldviews and Ecology, a book discussing perspectives on the environmental crisis from world religions and contemporary philosophy. Uh, his wife, And uh, John are currently organizing a series of 12 conferences on religions and the world of ecology uh, to be held at Harvard University Center for the Study of World Religions. And John is also president of the American Tehard Association. And we welcome to Common Threads, Dr. John Grimm. Hello, John. Hello, Fred. Well, we're real excited to have you here in Grand Rapids in just a little bit. Uh, I think we've got a great conference uh, uh, coming up. And before we do anything else, I would like for you to tell us a little bit about what you envision. Give us a, a sneak preview of what people are going to see when they come to uh, listen to you speak.
2: Yes, it's good to let people in on the, uh, the message uh, that's to be delivered. Uh, Fred, I plan to address first the, the environmental crisis as a problem that affects all of us both in the United States and globally, and also to talk a bit about the problem behind the problem, Uh, namely the difficulty all of us have in addressing the environmental crisis and the environmental issues and all of their manifold expressions and the uh, sense that uh, the actions or the concerns of a single individual, what do they mean? in terms of these larger issues that we face, global warming, population issues, uh, biodiversity loss. So that problem behind the problem, then specifically the environmental issues themselves, and at the much greater length, I want to talk about the role of the religious traditions and the fact that these religious traditions have tremendous resources to bring to these issues and that a retrieval or an exploration of these traditions, bringing forward some of the ancient wisdom and insights of these traditions to help us reflect on these environmental issues. Obviously, the religious traditions themselves were often um, framed or explored uh, their own inner reflections in times very different than our own, so that some people might say that the ancient traditions can't speak to contemporary problems, but I think all of us feel that the wisdom inherent in those traditions has something to say to our contemporary problems, and what makes it so interesting and in fact so appropriate for the conference that you all have planned is that the religions are speaking uh, across disciplines and across communities of concern, so that the interreligious character of environmental dialogue is very, very much to the fore. I really uh, applaud the Interfaith Dialogue Association for recognizing that important dialogue that needs to be carried out, because these issues are not solved in a day or a month or a year. We need to talk about them for a a length of time. And then also the fact that the West Michigan Environmental Action Council has entered into co-sponsorship of this uh, collaborative conference, it indicates that dialogue that is now taking place between the religion and, say, to use the word sciences or ecology. And in that sense, one of the uh, t- phrases that I want to explore with the group is that religions themselves are necessary for this move we need to make, a transformative mood, into restoring and re-understanding human relations. Religions are necessary for that move, but they're not sufficient. We need the sciences. We need the environmentalists. We need those who've been working in the trenches in these issues to help those of us in the study of religion or in the practice of religion. We need them to help us understand what are the the issues here. So, Fred, that's some broad overview of what I hope to do in this
1: uh, plenary address. It seems to me that the notion of combining religious thought with ecological action is a relatively new phenomenon. Am I correct in that?
2: Yes uh, in, in and no. In the
1: 20th century? Uh,
2: I, I would say uh, yes in the sense that the extent of the problem, the magnitude of the issues now, to speak of environmental issues on both a global frame and in terms of a, of a region, an, an environmental system, ecosystem, that that type of language and that type of recognition is new. But no, in the sense that we find in the religious traditions, quite often, in the ancient scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian New Testament, the Vedas of the uh, tradition we call Hinduism, uh, in the Quran, we find uh, moments in which there were uh, problems with regard to human interaction with the environment, overuse of water, overcutting of trees, what happened during war situations when in a victorious um, conqueror would so decimate a region that they left it environmentally impoverished. And there was an understanding in these religious traditions that there was something ethically wrong with that type of relationship with the earth. So that, uh, yes, the, the magnitude of the problem and the relationship with our scientific understanding is new for the religions, but no religions have addressed this earlier on.
1: But isn't it interesting that most of us growing up in a, the Western societies with the with the Western religions, uh, when we were trained religiously, I don't think the environment ever came yes. up. I, I mean, yes. one would think that uh, over-exploiting the resources of the Earth would be right up there with premarital heavy petting yes. and graven images. Yes. Uh, yeah. But it wasn't.
2: Yeah. Fred, you're... Your observation is so poignant, the fact that you, uh, you see this, uh, wor- the world of our intimate personal relations between one another as always having been a concern for religions. How do we, how do we speak ethically about that, those intimate personal relationships? And now we begin to understand that that type of intimacy with the earth also calls for our attention. Uh, I'm uh, tempted to go in so many directions here, but first let me say that when I uh, address, in the Plenary Address, the issue of the environmental crisis, one of the perspectives that I want to bring forward is the disjunct that has occurred, especially in the Atlantic Mediterranean traditions or Western traditions, the disjunct between the human and the Earth. And it's a particularly modern way of looking at the world in other words in judaism or christianity and islam in their medieval expressions the world was still a vital living reality having been created by god it uh, called forth uh, uh, attention one had to deal with the world as something that was vibrant and alive but with the emergence of uh, both cartesian and scientific thought from the 16th century on, there has been this disjunct, this distancing between the knowing human subject and the world so that the world has increasingly become simply a realm of objective things, and we have an I-it relationship. And part of the the work of the religious traditions is to help science explore recovering the I-thou relationship with the natural world. And that, uh, it's going to be a very challenging, very interesting uh, set of uh, questions that will be raised because the the scientific community has built so much of its insight on that objectivizing gaze into the natural
1: world. Now, that's very interesting because oftentimes, especially in Western religions, we tend to, to be very critical of the Western religions for this notion of a transcendent deity, yes. uh, sort of... Uh, One generation removed away from creation. Uh, But you're saying that it isn't necessarily the religion's fault, uh, that science uh, uh, had a hand in this as well.
2: There's been a shared participation of all of us in the issue. I am not myself inclined to simply cast the blame at one door or the other. I, I would say that from the emergence of the powerful insights of the scientific method, empirical method, and sense of experimental predictability, that that powerful method of knowing, uh, we in the religious traditions gave over to the scientific world that realm which we might call cosmology, the understanding of the world and insight into the world And as the religions withdrew from that area of cosmology, science became the instructive voice regarding the nature and structure of the world. And what we're seeing now, and what I think the conference, part of it is is, uh, the return of religious communities, of the religious voice to cosmology. We're beginning again to explore, what is the story? What is that story of the world that moves us that gives us passion about our understanding of one another and about the world. And just one other comment, Fred, about uh, the other traditions of uh, uh, so-called world religions, uh, Hinduism or Buddhism and uh, the East Asian traditions of Confucianism and Taoism, that all of these religious traditions have both fostered at what I call a religious ecology, namely a religious vision of the interrelationship of life, especially, say, for example, the Western traditions, the sense of everything has been created by God. So it's a created reality, and it interrelates. In Buddhism, there's a very poignant uh, uh, observation called the dependent origination of reality, in which all of the world is seen as interrelated and interdependent in that sense. And yet these traditions, with their wisdom insights, have also seen a tremendous uh, degradation of local environments, often under the um, the drive of a transcendent uh, promise. So that in Hinduism or Buddhism, also there's the sense of a a realm of incredible enlightenment and liberty and it's generally associated with a realm beyond either interior mental realm beyond or literally a world beyond such as we speak of heaven in the western traditions or paradise so these transcendent drives while they're crucial to religion and they're very significant part that's one of the areas that we need to re-explore what is the relationship of that transcendent realm To this realm of material reality does matter matter
1: if you're just joining us you're listening to common threads here on WGVU radio I'm Fred Stella and joining me today is dr. John Grimm he is going to be the keynote speaker at our interfaith dialogue association SLAS uh... religion ecology and spirituality conference this will be happening on november second between noon and six right here at grand valley state university in downtown grand rapids and we will have more information about uh, how you can find out more information a little later on but uh, let's uh, get back to talking with dr Grimm, uh... john looking at uh... an article that you had on your website yeah. I, I found a particular uh, portion that was interesting, uh, uh, someone by the name of E. N. Anderson, I will confess I don't know who that person is, yes. uh, but um, he states he or she, I don't know. Uh,
2: it's a gentleman, and he's a scholar of East Asian traditions, especially Taoism, okay. and indigenous traditions.
1: Okay, uh, and uh, there's a quote from him that says, all traditional societies that have succeeded in managing resources well over time have done it in part through religious or ritual representation yeah. of resource management. Yeah. Uh, expand on that, will you?
2: Well, let me go in the direction of uh, indigenous or native traditions with which I'm uh, more familiar. Um, in uh, the hunting realm or fishing realm, the, the world of subsistence activities whereby local people, people fed themselves, uh, quite often there were sets of Regulations that were in place within these communities. And by regulations, I mean that certain animals were hunted at certain times of the year. And I think that's quite familiar even with hunters today in the American scene. When is it appropriate to uh, take an animal for its food or, or its um, skin? And same with fishing, also the sense of regulations within indigenous communities about appropriate times for fishing, when fish were spawning. This kind of traditional environmental knowledge was implemented in these indigenous communities, often in the forms of prohibitions, which were called in the anthropological language taboos or prohibitions, and then oftentimes Uh, religious uh, perspectives other than native peoples themselves simply describe these as superstitions that these indigenous people lived in a superstitious realm and when we revisit some of those so-called superstitions we find that embedded within them were ways of relating to the natural world and ritualizing those relationships to the natural world so as to both celebrate and to mark the regulations about when animals should be hunted, when fish should be hunted. For example, the Gwich'in people in Alaska who've been uh, featured very prominently in the whole issue of of Anwar or the uh, the Arctic uh, wilderness area, that the Gwich'in have such uh, a relationship with the porcupine caribou herd which migrates through their territory and they migrate from the area that is uh, focus of the oil drilling namely to the coastal area the gwich'in do not hunt in that area they recognize that as a calving area as a area in which the um, the new uh, offspring are both of uh, birth is given uh, to them and they are raised up in that coastal region then they migrate over the mountains through guichin territory and that's when the guichin say it is appropriate to hunt caribou just to push this a little bit more the language that's used among many hunting peoples in their relationship with uh, animals it's a very interesting book by a gentleman uh, named adrian tanner called bringing home game And he draws on other research also, so his is not the only work. James Preston has spoken on this also. Namely, the language that is used between Anishinaabe peoples, Ojibwe peoples or Chippewa, uh, Cree peoples, other uh, northern Algonquian peoples, the language that's used by the hunter in describing the animal hunted, the way that animal uh, gives permission to the hunter, and then the, uh, the hunting of the animal and bringing home the slain animal. The language is one of intimacy and love. It's the same language, the same types of terms that uh, a hunter would use in the intimacy of his home with his uh, maid, with his spouse. And so that uh, paralleling the analogous languages of hunting and the intimacy of the home is one indication of how indigenous peoples wove that um, uh, intimacy of relationships with the natural world, which they saw on the same level as we would call household relationships or the intimacy of personal relationships.
1: So you're saying that uh, these indigenous peoples actually understood the rhythms of the earth they understood well they understood the science is what you're telling me they understood that you can't hunt an animal at this particular time because this is the mating season or Mm -hmm. this is the birthing season or some whatever it is but that why was it called superstition when it sounds to me like it's good science
2: well the the phrases for articulating these prohibitions were often put in the language of the slaughter of the animal, in other words, the butchering, that's the better term, the butchering of the animal, the hunting of the animal, the butchering of the animal, and then the distribution of the meat. These were all related to kinship uh, also, namely who received what meat. So the, the sharing was a basic value here. The universe is a giving universe, and so, when the animal gives itself to you, the understanding is already implicit that when you uh, butcher this animal, it will go out to the community. Now, I uh, I appreciate your your use of the word science here, but I think it's a different understanding, and I, I think both in the sense that the the power of the scientific insight has its own. Um, way of understanding the world and I I, uh, characterized it to to some extent with this disjunct or a separation between the human and the world. And I would stand by that but I would also affirm the scientific vision. It's it's also groping. We are in a time of trying to re-understand what it is that we have come to. On the indigenous side, I would say that knowledge is more correctly characterized as a traditional environmental knowledge. And I would Want to separate out T E K, an acronym that's often used to to focus on this way of knowing, that the word tradition, um, again, like the the use of the word superstition, has actually tells us more about we outsiders who look at this tradition rather than about the traditions themselves. Namely, we've seen traditions as frozen, and certainly native people have been the subject of that kind of freezing gaze or freezing vision we have projected upon native peoples that their their traditions are frozen and unchanging and even from just the the small bit of understanding that i get as a student taught by native leaders that these traditions are they're vibrant they're alive they're still growing even today and i'd actually like to come back to that in a moment but that that sense of traditional knowledge, I'd like to also to focus on the affection embedded in that. The relationship with the natural world in those traditions was extremely loving and affectionate. And again, it's hard, difficult for us to think of a hunter killing an animal or fishing, and at the same time, the intimacy of affection. But I would uh, stand by that very strongly. On the other side of TEK, then, the knowledge, the knowledge of plants, the knowledge of animals, the knowledge of seasons, that type of awareness was deeply ritualized also, to just return to an earlier question you raised. That the way in which that knowledge was transmitted to the younger was also often during the practice itself and then during ritual moments. But traditional environmental knowledge then in the indigenous context had this, in, this very interesting openness to the affection and, uh, I- and intimacy as well as knowledge and this, the, the distance that comes from uh, the, the killing of life forms. So that indigenous religions often had to deal with this intimacy and distance question, and they dealt with it so profoundly. That's one of the, the areas that I'm hoping indigenous elders and leaders will be able to bring forward in their dialogue in, among the world religions, that alternative vision that they provide of the the, the intimacy of affection, and yet the, the distance that they had to acquire with the knowledge that they were taking life in this world. Uh, Fred, just to make a last comment about native traditions and their contemporary expression, the... The pressures on Native peoples around the world today are incredibly intense. They had diminished somewhat at the turn of the 19th, 20th century with the whole colonization of the larger globe, and indigenous peoples were pushed off into rather remote and unwanted regions quite often, or regions that we simply could not penetrate yet. But now by the end of the 20th century and the initiation of the 21st century, there are no indigenous peoples that are not affected by the dominant societies around them, by the globalized economy around us, and the homelands of indigenous people are under incredible pressures. So again, we have this uh, example of people who have lived intimately with their bioregion, who have an understanding of it from this affection and knowledge standpoint, and they are still simply being pushed aside or not allowed adequate voice in determining what will happen to their homelands.
1: Well, John, I would like to dev- delve into this a uh, bit deeper with you. We're running out of time right now. Uh, real quick, I, I know that there's a couple of websites of interest Yes. Uh, give uh, give us one website you think that uh, people would, if, if they want to investigate this a little bit further.
2: Yes, the Forum on Religion and Ecology, which Mary Evelyn Tucker and I uh, started in 1998 after the ten conferences at Harvard, which have been producing the volumes. Uh, there are now uh, eight volumes that are out uh, on, say, Christianity and Ecology, Buddhism and Ecology, and so forth. Uh, Judaism and Ecology will be the eighth volume uh, within the month. And those, uh, that conference series and the discussions uh, in those conferences are mounted on the Forum, and religion, uh, Forum on uh, Religion and Ecology website, and that's at the Center for the Environment at Harvard University. And the w- website address is environment.harvard.edu slash religion.
1: Okay, and uh, John, I'm going to ask you to uh, be with us next week. We'll continue this. And I want to mention one more time that the uh, conference, this will be the 12th annual World Religions Conference for Interfaith Dialogue Association, and it will be the third biennial religion, ecology, and spiritual conference for the West Michigan Environmental Action Council. We've partnered on this. Dr. John Grimm is our plenary speaker. It's going to happen between noon and 6, November second at the Eberhard Center here in downtown Grand Rapids at uh, Grand Valley State University, Uh, Register if you get in by the 18th, is $15. It's $20 at the door. Students are free. Students from anywhere, any institution, any age, come on down. It's going to be a, a fabulous uh, afternoon. John, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next week. It's good to talk, Fred, and I look forward to a future
2: conversation.
1: You're listening to WGVU Radio. This is Common Threads.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening, and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an Interfaith Dialogue.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Let me read something to you right now. Ours is a period when the human community is in search of new and sustaining relationships to the Earth amidst an environmental crisis that threatens the very existence of all life forms on the planet. While the particular causes and solutions of this crisis are being debated by scientists, economists, and policymakers, the facts of widespread destruction are causing alarm in many quarters. Indeed, from some perspectives, the future of human life itself appears threatened. As Daniel McGuire has succinctly observed, if current trends continue, we will not. Thomas Berry, the former director of the Riverdale Center for Religious Research, also raised the stark question, is the human a viable species on an endangered planet? Well, not to sound alarmist, but these are, of course, grave concerns that we're all dealing with right now. And the Interfaith Dialogue Association, in conjunction with the West Michigan Environmental Action Council, is producing uh, our 12th annual World Religions Conference called Spirituality and Environment. And this will be the third biennial, biennial Uh, Conference for WEMIAC's Religion, Ecology and Spirituality Connection. The conference will provide an opportunity for reflection, discussion and commitment among peoples of many faiths regarding our environmental practices and spiritual relationships to the earth. The keynote address and workshop will be presented by Dr. John Grimm on the contributions of religious and spiritual communities, including Native American, to the renewed ecological vision. Dr. Grimm is a professor of world religions at Bucknell University and co-editor of a series of books on religion and the world of ecology. And uh, he was our guest last weekend, and he is going to be with us today. And let me just mention that our conference is happening November 2nd between noon and 6 p.m. at the Eberhard Center, which is right here at Grand Valley State University. And uh, We spoke to John yesterday, or I should say last week, giving us a sneak preview of what we're going to experience at the conference, and as I say, we're going to continue today. John, welcome back to Common Threads.
2: Hello, Fred. It's good to join you again.
1: Last week we talked, well, we started our sneak preview and you indicated uh, some very important issues that you're going to bring up when it comes to the investing of religion and ecology. And I was going over your uh, credentials, and it uh, mentions that you have a particular interest in the Ojibwe.
2: That's right. My uh, initial dissertation work was a study of uh, healing practices among uh, Anishinaabe people, especially Ojibwe peoples. That's right.
1: Uh, Did that bring you to Michigan at all?
2: I drove through several times, but my studies were conducted both in Minnesota and North Dakota. Okay. Okay. But we, Michigan is certainly the original homeland of uh, Anishinaabe Ojibwe peoples. Yeah.
1: Well, we just wanted to make sure people didn't forget that.
2: Yes, <laughs> it's good. Uh,
1: and uh, so last week, when we when we uh, were cut off because of lack of time, we were talking about the ritual, the importance of ritual in indigenous communities, and uh, how people peoples who have those kinds of rituals tend to look upon the earth uh, in it with a gentler vision, uh, make less footprints? Ultimately, yeah. that's what you were saying, correct?
2: Yes, I think that metaphor of the footprint is often used even by the science community today. Ecologists talk about the ecological footprint, and that's a wonderful reverberation to indigenous traditions which reminds us uh, of uh, the concern that indigenous people had to minimize that footprint uh it's also important to um, not romanticize indigenous peoples that the relationship of local peoples to their environment has faced some very difficult questions very challenging questions uh, often uh, questions of overuse and over-exploitation, and the way in which indigenous people responded to those uh, possibilities of overuse of, or of over-exploitation. That itself is um, a part of the, the dialogue that indigenous peoples bring to the, the dialogue of world religions on uh, environmental concerns. For example... Uh, In South America, those native peoples, and they are an intense and highly differentiated groups of native peoples in the Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia, Guyana region. One group, the uh, Yacowana, often called Mari Katare or Soto people as they refer to themselves. But there's a wonderful book by the anthropologist David Guss, G-U-S-S. He titles it To Weave and Sing, and it's a story of the Yakuwana relationship with their local environment. And he focuses on the, lo- the roundhouse, a rather large and extremely beautiful, complicated uh, r- roundhouse that the Yakuwana people build. And in that roundhouse, there there is a concern both for the inner circle of the roof and the outer circle that hangs out. The water would flow off of the full roof, that inner circle then corresponds down into the longhouse with an inner part, which is the men's lodging area, and then the outer part c- corresponds to the women, and families live in the outer section. The inner men's section is generally elder men, un- unmarried men, the younger boys who have been initiated come into that region. And the Yakawana, according to Gus, They report the inner circle as the realm of the sacred, so many rituals, that's where they take place in that inner circle in the longhouse. And the outer circle is the world at large, the world of the forest and uh, uh, the beautiful uh, temperate forest around them and um, uh, searching for the right ecological term rather than temperate, rather than saying jungle, but it's a, a South American forested region and the, the point that I want to go at is the, the forested region itself in Yekawana mythic thought is a very problematic realm. It's problematic because it's alive, and it's alive with, well, we might use the word soul. It has some connection in, in English with how the Yekawana understand. They, they use the word akato. Everything we see has a double everything has something behind it something spiritual behind it and if you go into that realm and if you take things from that realm grasses for weaving baskets wood for building the the roundhouse you have to deal with that double you have to somehow ritually address that double that spiritual realm and you have to place yourself in right relationship with it I would, uh, just to draw this to a conclusion, Fred, that I would suggest that that's an example in the indigenous context, indigenous religions. uh, That's an example of of an environmental ethics, an effort to establish oneself in relationship to the natural world. They have used their own metaphysics to talk about it, how that there is some soul behind it. But the point that comes forward is they realized limits. They realized that humans have to live in relationship to this world with limits or else it will be exploited and gone, that there's only so much cane um, roots and uh, grasses to weave uh, baskets and make the material a culture that the Yakawana enjoy, but they have to know how to limit it and who can make these things, these gender limitations on things. All oh, they all constitute... An incredible environmental ethics. Uh, And this is woven then into their ritual life, which is another discussion that I'll save for another day, Fred, so we might return to a question you have.
1: That's fine. What I'd like to do is focus a little bit on some of the religions that we'll be dealing with in the conference. Um, Let's throw out a a couple of of faith traditions, and I'd like you to comment on uh, where the the mandate is in the religion yes, to uh, go forward and make few footprints. So let's start with Christianity.
2: Yes. Uh, in Christianity, the, um, the article by Lynn White in the in 1960s, which suggested that the root of the ecologic crisis, uh, he laid it at the f- uh, foot of religions, especially Judaism and Christianity, and he leaned very heavily on uh, Genesis, I believe uh, verses uh, chapter one verses twenty six to twenty eight um, the sense of dominion or the domination of the human over the natural world, which is suggested in those verses. now both the uh, Judaism uh, scholars uh, uh, of uh, Judaism have revisited that term and re-explored what, what's invested in that term of dominion. And it's understood now by many uh, scholars of Judaism and ecology that the idea of uh, stewardship was nuanced in that the sense of the human being the one who cared for the earth because the earth was God's, it was created by God, and we were given that role of shepherding or stewardship. Uh, many find even the role of stewardship inadequate to describe the the inherent quality of the natural world, say what n- Native peoples or others might call the soul or the vitality or the spirit realm in the natural world. But nonetheless, in the Western traditions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, there is this sense of the human who uh, stands in relationship to the natural world as the one who shepherds or stewards God's creation. And that's very important to retrieve those ideas. And then also the effort in the medieval period of all of three of these traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all three of them drawing extensively on classical Greek thought and understanding that the the character of rational relationship with the world, the sense of understanding the world rationally, that that was seen as the gift of the divine to the human. This was uh, to uh, cite the Hebrew scriptures in the image and likeness of God. So again, that um, those questions of what is our divine uh, image and likeness that has been implanted in the human, what relationship to the natural world is fostered by a retrieval of these basic understandings in these traditions and then reevaluating these positions in terms of contemporary uh, environmental problems and reconstructing our understanding of these traditions and these seminal ideas within Islam, for example, the idea of the human as caliphate or vice the one who stands, uh, in a care relationship for the earth, and this is very clearly cited in the Quran, where the human of all of the creatures in creation, uh, when Allah or God called out who would stand as his mediator, his uh, caliph uh, in relationship to creation, it was the human who stepped forth. And the Quran says that the human was uh, somewhat foolish to do this because it is such a responsibility. But there is an incredible statement in that tradition about the ethical relationship that the human has with the natural world, and it's an ethical relationship of care and concern.
1: That is very powerful. Uh, There are those who are devoutly religious who would look upon what you are attempting to do as encouraging a form of paganism they look at the environmental movement as as a branch of paganism how do you answer that
2: well the the term pagani is uh, has a long history behind it and it's it can be used like uh, so many terms someone might call me a liberal too it <laughs> might be another version the political version of being called a pagan i'm not a pagan i come out of the christian tradition and still am in that tradition But uh, I can appreciate the concern that those who would mount that charge, that they feel the the power and majesty of the divine is diminished if somehow we see the world itself as a sacred or numinous reality, a a reality that calls us forward and yet uh, causes us to hesitate because of his power, that the the old idea of Pagani was the rural. Uh, th- those were the rural folks whom the urban Roman or the urban Roman civilization uh, used the term Pagani to denigrate the rural folks. Well, it's obviously very interesting in the uh, Spirituality and the Environment Collaborative Conference that will take place November 2nd. Uh, rural concerns are very much to the fore. And so the the sense of what what is this natural community that we live in in the rural areas? How is it that religions can speak to it? Um, I would double back then on the the question of the charge of uh, paganism to uh, uh, to two areas. Uh, one, I I find myself not diminishing the human. I'm not interested in removing the human in the sake of giving all of my attention to species other than human. What I would like to see is the human put back in the horizon of being again, but I'm especially interested in the children. I'm very concerned about the children in the future, the grandchildren of those who are coming. Just to state it most poignantly, I cannot imagine a world where our grandchildren will not know our the great apes, the, the, our primate cousins, They will not know that they are in their home, in their habitat, in the wild, in those regions where they live now in Africa and Borneo. But we receive reports consistently now that that habitat is diminishing so rapidly by the depletion of forests, by the rampant cutting of forests in Borneo and in uh, Africa, in both the Congo and other parts of West Africa where mountain gorillas live that the increase in population in these areas is so intense that habitat loss indicates that it is no longer uh, if the great apes will become extinct, but rather when they will become extinct. That issue for me is not simply a paganism issue. That's an issue of life. That's an issue of flourishing life, and I would love to see the grandchildren of all of those who attend the conference, of all of us, to know that uh, they will, the grandchildren will know those great apes in the wild. How that will be accomplished, it's, uh, it's a collaborative effort. Again, we need the, the religions in these areas. We need to begin the dialogue, even in this country, and to reach out to Africa, to Indonesia, to Malaysia, to reach out in uh, our collaborative dialogue with them, how can we help you preserve, rather than simply imposing our views upon these other uh, areas or regions. Uh, Obviously, these are very complicated issues, but the dialogue that's taking place between religion and science is not well served by simply charging that these are uh, pagan perspectives or liberal perspectives, they are real perspectives. We have real problems that we have to face, and we need knowledgeable people, both in the sciences and the ecological disciplines, as well as the cultural world, and especially the religious world, because it's the religious world that has provided us with transformative visions, and we're desperately in need of transforming our relationship with the natural world.
1: This is WGVU. The program is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella and today we're doing sort of a sneak preview of our annual World Religions Conference that we are hosting in conjunction with uh, the West Michigan Environmental Action Council. Dr. John Grimm is our guest today. He will be our keynote speaker. The conference is November 2nd, that's a Saturday, between noon and six right here at uh, Grand Valley State University. We'll have more information on that at the end of our program. Uh, and John, I wanted to, well, first of all, I wanted to relate an, an experience that I, I'm yeah. sure you have a comment on. When I was in India a couple of years ago, yeah. uh, first of all, I was in Mumbai, uh, which is, you know, one of the largest cities in the world, yes. and it uh, was, uh, of course, kind of dirty, uh, very polluted, uh, the air difficult to breathe, especially on a very humid day. And I think most people who go to uh, Asia, they go to cities like that, and they think, well, this is how this culture exists. This is what this country is. And, of course, that's as absurd as going to New York City and saying, well, this is the United States of America in total. Uh, I was also on a a safari and went to the jungle deep in the south of India, and and I found it to be absolutely pristine and... Uh, it, it's so funny because it seems like the Indian government just really doesn't care what happens in its larger cities. They've sort of given up on that. But when you enter into some of these areas, the rules and regulations are absolutely incredible. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they're they inviting you in as their guest, and you leave about half a footprint. Uh, the camp that uh, we stayed in, we weren't allowed to bring plastic in.
2: Now, isn't that encouraging to hear that? That type of environmental understanding and concern in other regions, especially a region like South Asia, which we image as being uh, squalid and uh, thoughtless with regard to its environment.
1: Right, and we were actually able to uh, interact with some of the uh, tribal folks in that region, and and saw how they lived uh, very lightly on yeah. the earth, and and got a sense of how of how they. Uh, commune with that.
2: Yes. And there are, just to draw off the top of my head, uh, two uh, professors who have remarkable insights into Hinduism and ecology in this regard. Uh, Professor David Haberman at Indiana University has done remarkable work on the efforts to um, purify or clean depollute the rivers of northern India, uh, the Yamuna especially, and the Ganges. And so he makes uh, his readership aware of uh, the intense environmental activity by groups in those regions to fight the pollution of those rivers, and that they are making some headway. And uh, Professor Vasuda Narayan, uh, I believe she's the outgoing president of the American Academy of Religion, uh, she writes on these remarkable uh, turn by some of the temples of uh, India that when uh when a pilgrim goes to a temple in india it's typical to receive a gift from the temple which a person then either brings home as a sign of the the um, this that sacramental relationship of the pilgrimage say uh it's called prasad, and one form of prasad are special sweets, say a ball of uh, honey and nuts that so you could take home then, and you could give some of that sweet to the children or the old people who stayed home. So it's a way of their participating in the pilgrimage. What some of the large temples have done now in India is they recognize the deforestation both around their own temples and at large in india and they are using as prasad uh, seedlings and so they are giving to pilgrims small trees uh, that they, they ask them then to plant either in designated areas around the temple at a distance trying to build back the forest around the temple or to take home and to tend that tree as an ongoing relationship with this pilgrimage event, with their sense of the sacred involved in the pilgrimage. So there's some extraordinary environmental activities going on around the world, but focused on uh, South Asia and India. And it's so good to hear of your experiences, even though uh, Mumbai, uh, Bombay is a rather uh, striking and uh, shocking example of what Uh, population, uh, the devastation of uh, uncontrolled uh, pollution by vehicles and by industry. And India is trying to address that, but it's it's very difficult for them in terms of the economic uh, pressures to maintain productivity, to maintain the transport system in those countries.
1: I got to tell you this, though, John. A few weeks ago, I was in Uh, Los Angeles, yeah, and and I was jogging from the hotel, and I found myself jogging through South Central. And um, it smelled worse Uh than Mumbai, honest to God. Uh It really did. It really did.
2: Well, I was also at Loyola Marymount University this summer. uh, The Forum on Religion and Ecology was holding its fourth uh, uh, high school teachers' workshop on teaching religion and ecology. We've been doing these each summer, both here at Bucknell and other institutions, and Loyola Marymount overlooks the Playa del Rey development, which is a staggering uh, development project removing the area of braided streams that carried the uh, Los Angeles River and other uh, waterways into the ocean. And to see this example of sprawl and the development uh, in Los Angeles, uh, it's just striking again as a, a question that we face as a larger country how to manage our growth so that we can foster the development that we need economically and yet maintain habitat for a flourishing life, for the community of life in our region.
1: Well, I hope that you've inspired a few people to attend our conference, John, and I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to
2: It's been good this. to talk. And and I look forward to uh, the November 2nd gathering.
1: It's it's going to be a wonderful event, and I want to tell people one more time, uh, this is our World Religions Conference for the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Uh, we are partnering with the West Michigan Environmental Action Council. It's entitled Spirituality and the Environment. Dr. John Grimm, our guest today. Uh, will be the keynote speaker. Uh, registration, $15 by October 18th, $20 at the door. Students are free. You can get more information at www.interfaithdialog.org, or you can call Carla at WEMIAC at 451-3051. That's 451-3051. John, thanks again, and we'll see you in a very short time. It's
2: been good to talk, Fred, and look forward to meeting.
1: I'm Fred Stella. This is Common Threads here on WGVU.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University.